And this is especially painful if this suffering and discrimination is because of our group membership. Do you know what I mean when I say group membership? Group membership such as our race and ethnicity, gender identity, sexual orientation, socioeconomic status, education level, migration status, country of origin, etc., etc., etc. To suffer pain because of who we are is a betrayal by the society that we live in, by the community of humans that we belong in. What happens when we experience pain? Let me talk a little bit about that, because that relates to how pain becomes shame. Let's take, let me take the most obvious example, which is if I'm walking in the forest, imagine I'm walking in the forest, okay, and there is a bear. Got a scenario? Simple scenario so far. I walk in the forest and there is a bear. What do you do when there's a bear? No, okay, okay. <laughs> there are all kinds of... Uh, again, I suggest if you are not sure, take a field trip and try different versions. <laughs> meet different bears and see which one works best. But So God equipped us with physical survival programs, right? So... I want to talk, this is a little bit luxury, so excuse me, this is, uh, but a simple model about how we survive, okay? Because we are all here because our ancestors survived, number one. And do you know what kind of ancestors survive? People who are too laid back, right, if there's a bear, hello bear, how are you? <laughs> or, huh, let me see what kind of bear it is. Or, Let's do some mindfulness meditation with bears. <laughs> or let's practice nonviolent communication. People who are too laid back don't survive enough, don't survive long enough to pass on their genes. Okay? So evolution favors an anxiety bias, isn't that right? We are all here because our ancestors are especially anxious. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> but coming back, okay, when we feel safe, right? then our nervous system is organized in a way, our brain is organized in a way that we can connect with other people. We can be creative. We can be productive. We can focus. We can feel calm yet alert. Right? We can play. We can really enjoy life if we feel safe. Does that make sense? Right? This is called the engagement state. It's a physiological state. That's the engagement state. The metaphor is when you, are, when you feel safe and when you are in the engagement state in your brain, it's the equivalent of living in a nice house where the thermostat is working correctly, the alarm system is working correctly, and you feel safe in the house. You can take a bubble bath. Two months ago, I took my first bubble bath. I love it. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to do it again. I keep saying I'm going to do it again. It just seems a lot of trouble. But... So you can feel safe enough, you can enjoy your home, you can invite friends over to have a pizza party, right? You can invite friends over to have a board game, you can read, you can play with your cat. My cat's name is Frodo, one of those short-legged uh, Persian cat. Before I have this cat, I never knew you can develop such attachment bond with a four-legged animal. 
I was so surprised. I talk more to Frodo than anybody else in my life. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. I'm, I'm not that bad anymore. <laughs> um, so, so engagement state is you are able to enjoy being in the house, invite friends over, and really live life to the fullest. Does that make sense? But that is only possible if you feel safe. Because in the wild, while we live among bears, trying to engage when it's not safe, hasten our death. Doesn't, isn't that right? So if I'm walking in a forest and I meet a bear, my brain and my body automatically go into a fight or flight state, which is, can I beat the bear or am I fast enough to run away from the bear? Does that make sense? Okay. Which is great, right? Those fight or flight thing is wonderful. It helps us survive. But let's consider the situation. When the bear comes home with you every night, because what's causing the sense of danger is not a bear in the forest, but it's your parents or society that you live in that have all these ideas about who you are if they know you are LGBTQI+. Isn't that right? The sense of threat is forever there. It's 24-7. Right? Does that make sense? When the pain is from things that we cannot really fight or flight our way from. So what happened in the brain and the body when we cannot fight or flight our way back to safety. It turned out our brain goes to a third state. If we feel safe, we are in the engagement state. If there's danger, a bear in the forest, we go to the fight or flight. But if the bear comes home every night, our brain goes into a state called freeze and shut down state, where we begin to withdraw, where we begin to isolate ourselves where we begin to collapse emotionally, where we begin to feel really depressed and suicidal. Right? And there's an adaptive function in evolution because if I cannot run to safety, then I'm going to just shut down and wait until the storm passes. Except if you live in a homophobic, transphobic culture, the storm never passes. And you end up stuck in that state where you feel so depressed, so bad about yourself, when you feel so empty, so alone, so withdrawn, so isolated, and with so much shame. Shame is part of that freeze and shutdown state. That's when you internalize what's wrong in the society into something wrong with you. Do you see that internalization? That's the absorbing the stinky water. So if you swim in the pain long enough and there's nothing that you can do to fight or flight your way from the source of that pain, then at some point you started believing there may indeed be something wrong with you. I'm wondering if there's any questions about this particular framework to think about pain and shame before I continue. Questions or thoughts? 
Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, if so, this there can be many complexity. But let me just give you one version to help illustrate. Is if I start believing that there's something wrong with me, then that causes a lot of pain, and this pain is internally generated rather than only external. Then, if I don't know how to feel okay, addiction is one way to go to an external substance or activity to give me a temporary moment of feeling okay in my body. Does that make sense? Addiction is never the problem. Addiction is always an attempted solution at the real problem. The real problem is we don't feel okay inside, and we don't know how to feel okay. So we desperately try to find anything that will give us that one moment of feeling okay. That's the addiction process. Thank you for asking. So all these things happen in my life. Uh, you have a question? Yeah. I do. Uh -huh. Bear. Yeah, another good question. This is, you guys are like my students when I'm teaching counseling classes. So let me answer that. And I think the best way to think about it is I'll give you an answer that's based on the relationship between parents and kids, okay? But same dynamic applies in terms of the uh, minority group and society dominant group, okay? So let me answer that briefly. And then, uh, and then but I think it w it's a really good question. So. I ask your imagination. So if I'm a baby, okay, and you are my, who want to be my parent? <laughs> you want to be my parent, okay. So if, but in this example, it's a bad parent, is that all right? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But right I'll, I'll give you a hug after the talk, okay. <laughs> but in this, so, um, so in this example, I'm the baby, okay. I'm dependent on the parent for survival. Ba human babies are very helpless, right? So if, let's say, my parents are abusive or neglectful and I'm not getting my needs met, what, what do babies do when they are not getting their needs met? They cry, okay? Now, if my parents still hurt me, right? So at some point, I become mad. It's like WTF, right? If you're not ready for a kid, don't bring me. It's not my fault that I'm here. And when I'm here, I'm relying on you. You need to take care of me, right? Anger is a very natural response to something that is wrong. Right? Why, why are you bringing me here and not take care of me? Does that make sense? Now, here's the dilemma facing that child. The child, the baby. Sorry, I, I, I grew up while I'm, we are talking. <laughs> so, the baby, okay, the baby. Okay. Baby, I'm a baby, yes, okay. So, okay, yeah, okay, baby, I'm a baby. So, now, if I'm angry, Let's say I'm a baby or young child. If I'm angry, I have two choices. Number one, I express my anger towards you. But if what I want is for you to love me, that may be shooting myself in the foot by expressing anger and aggression towards you and also at the same time longing for your love and acceptance. Does that make sense? It's like shooting myself in my foot. By the way, in some family, it's not safe to express anger, right? 
I might be punished even more, I might be abused even more. Right? But there's one more reason why it's so hard for a young child to express anger towards my parent, because what if I rage against the machine, rage against the dying of the light, that is her not doing her job, do you see I can't change her, and I'm still really, really screwed as a baby. I live in a cold, dark universe where no matter how much I cry, nobody ever come and play with me and love me and cuddle me and take care of me. Do you see it's a completely hopeless situation for the child? Therefore, when this kind of abuse or neglect situation happen, especially early on, most children internalize and they turn the anger towards themselves and they start holding themselves responsible for what happened to them. This is very common in all kinds of trauma. Does that make sense? And what happened when we turn the anger inward is instead of saying you are responsible, which leads to a cold dark universe because I can't change you, but I start believing that I'm not loved because I'm not worthy to be loved. I'm abused because there's something wrong with me and I deserve to be abused. I'm neglected because I don't deserve being taken good care of. Does that make sense? There's something not enough about me. That's the anger turning inward, becoming the shame. But let me say one more thing. There's a genius behind shame, which is, if I blame you, everything is hopeless because I can't change you. But if I blame myself, I preserve the hope that one day, as long as I fix whatever is wrong with me, I still have the hope to be loved for who I am. Isn't that right? For the young child or the baby, that is the only good choice, is to blame me, but that gives me a sense of hope that one day I will be loved. And that matches back to when I, my journey of growing up is that sense of not good enough, some sense of there's something flawed about me. In fact, I remember as a child, I, I would remember looking into the mirror and I really hate my appearance. I would think to myself, you are so ugly that nobody would love you. It also doesn't help that my mom once in her anger said, when, said to me, when you were a, ch a baby, you were so beautiful. I don't know why when you grow up, you become more and more ugly just like your dad. Only once, but I remember. And she said with anger, didn't mean, but you know, children internalize what their parents say. So now I have become a member of a Southern Baptist church and for the first six weeks, everything was great. I was walking on water, very, very light and at peace. And then on the recommendation of a friend at church, I started going to ex-gay ministry. Anybody know ex-gay ministry? Yeah, okay. Yep. So I spent some time there and it's, um, met some good people in terms of my peers and also have some really uh, dark spiritual times. Um, and I remember one time when I was at an ex-gay conference, I was attending a workshop and the workshop leader was talking about all kinds of junk, 
Like for example, this workshop leader was talking about if you are a gay man, expect to die by age 40. He would also say things like, homosexuals are like viruses. You don't negotiate with virus. You try to get rid of them by converting them straight. Things like that. So I feel slightly uncomfortable sitting through this workshop, and I decided to go to the bathroom. Uh, you know, when you get anxious, you need to go to the bathroom. But anyway, so I went to the bathroom, and on my way back to the workshop, I don't even know why I was going back, but that's the second thing, okay? But when on my way back to the workshop, I ran into this middle-aged woman who's just crying in the hallway. So I walk up to her and I say, are you okay? What is going on? And in between tears, she told me that her teenage son came out to her and her husband a couple months ago. And because she cared about her son's relationship with God, so they paid for the whole family to attend this ex-gay conference. And her son is sitting in this workshop. And she was really worried about what would be the workshop's impact on her son and her son's relationship with God and faith journey. So at that moment, I just remember very distinctly having a thought. This is death, not life. This is spiritual darkness, not light. And I decided to stop my involvement with ex-gay ministry while begin the reconciliation process of integrating my faith and my sexuality. And finally, after a seven year in San Francisco, I started having gay friends. <laughs> finally, I get there, eventually. And it's, it's a nonlinear process. Um, but I remember one scene from a gay Christian conference that I cannot forget is I was at a gay Christian conference that really helped people reconcile their sexuality and their spirituality. And in the first day of the conference, I saw these elderly Asian parents at this conference. And I was, I was both curious and you don't see a lot of Asian these conferences, and sometimes it does feel kind of lonely being the only. Right? Um, but I walk up to myself and say, hey, introduce myself. It turned out they are from the San Francisco Bay Area, and they attended a very conservative uh, mega church in the Bay Area that are very against homosexuality, and they themselves are also uh, believing homosexuality is a sin. However, their son came out to them a couple months ago, and even though they really struggle and they want to learn how to best love and support their son, so they come with their son to the Gay Christian Conference. And on the last day, on that Sunday, during worship service, this family is sitting right in front of me, the row in front of me. And sometime during the worship service, I saw the mom hugging the son and crying for a long, long time. And I started to cry because, you know, like, it's just there's something, like, just, like, I, I wish that was, honestly, I wish that was me and I wish that was my mom. That would be nice. 
So I started crying, and then after the mom and son uh, hugged each other and cried, then the son went over and hugged his father and cried. When's the last time you saw an Asian dad hug an Asian son and cry? I haven't. In fact, I grew up, my dad never say I love you. Just not in the culture. It doesn't mean he doesn't, but he just never say I love you. Never really huggy and touchy-feely. And my love language is touch. That kind of sucks. But So when I see the Asian son hugging the Asian father and crying, ah, I just release a bunch of liquids. <laughs> you know we are 70% liquid, right? You know, I, I heard somebody say, um, you know, what is the definition of human? Is the container to help water get from one place to another. <laughs> That's true. We are being used by water to move from one place to another. But anyway, so all kinds of liquids just get released. Okay. Uh, only, only in my face, okay? I mean, <laughs> don't you have any idea, okay? Only in my, in my head, all kinds of, you know, things here. And then the mom came over and hugged me. And because she's an Asian mom, so even though I was sitting down, I was still taller than her. <laughs> While she was standing hugging me, and I'm sitting down. But anyway, so I had a good cry, and that was very, very healing. And I think there's something shifted. There are just some of these key moments when you look back at your life that you may not fully understand in that very moment, the significant. But you look back and you just feel like something shifted, right? Something shifted in your body, something shifted in, you can be a little bit more compassionate towards yourself. There seems to be a little bit less self-hatred and insecurity. There's a more sense of ease. Do you know what I'm talking about? Where those moments where you feel so loved by your parent or a parent figure or a friend or a lover or God, or you have such a good experience in the worship service that you feel really the oneness with the Spirit and the Holy Spirit. Right? Those are really exquisite, memorable moments. That was one of them for me. So I talk about pain. I talk about shame. Let me talk a little bit about resilience. And I want to open up for any questions that you may have. Sorry, I typed in the wrong password. Hang on one second. So what is resilience? Anybody has a rubber band? Or something stretchy? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Okay, wow, very appropriate. Yeah, okay. So what is resilience? So we have, oh, only one is enough, thank you. Yeah. So I talk about pain, I talk about shame. What is resilience? Resilience is like a rubber band. So what do you see in this rubber band? I'm not talking about the color. What do you see? Round, right? Is this a natural elastic sort of a, I don't know, round shape, okay? So what will happen if I stretch this rubber band? Well, what happens if I stretch it and then release it? 
Okay, 100% so far, A plus. Okay, you can go back and tell your parents. <laughs> A plus, okay. So, um, but what happened? What happened if I keep applying force and I keep stretching? I wouldn't, so I want to just reassure you. This is a thought experiment from this point. <laughs> if I keep stretching and I keep stretching and all, use all my, you know, jimming, what will happen eventually? It will break. And when the rubber band breaks, it doesn't come back. It loses its resilience. But there's another situation where rubber band loses its resilience. What if I just stretch the rubber band just a little bit, but I hold it there for 15 years? When I release it, does it go back to its natural elasticity? It doesn't, right? So that's what resilience is and how you lose resilience. If you live in situation that you are constantly stressed, living in fear of being othered, being rejected, being misunderstood, being labeled, being judged, and you never feel safe, then over time the rubber band loses its natural elasticity and resilience. Does that make sense? So what will restore resilience or what will preserve resilience for people who belong to non-dominant group membership that experience a lot of rejection and othering and they don't feel safe is to create safe spaces for them. By safe spaces, I mean two things. Number one is external safety, as in you have a safe space in your university to go to where you can just be safe and share with people who are safe, right? Passing legislation, right, so that we penalize hate crimes. We create a safe environment where LGBTQI plus kids can be free from physical harm, bullying, right? That's one level of safety. Safety that comes from the absence of external threat. That's very worthwhile. But there's a different kind of safety. Have you all been to situations where you know there is no danger around, but you don't feel safe in your body? Have you had that experience? Like you are still anxious, right? You are still vigilant. So the second sense of safety it's really an internal sense of safety where it's not just lack of external danger, but you know that somebody loves you for who you are. You know that you can be safe with a person and you can truly allow even your internal oppressor to relax. Right? So that's a different kind of safety. Right? So either kind of safety, when you, for example, share your story and break the conspiracy of silence. When you reach out and have these small gestures of kindness, when you allow yourself to be vulnerable with other people, and in that vulnerability to vulnerability, your heart-to-heart, face-to-face conversation. What helps us feel safe is not just absence of danger, but the presence of safe connection. 
Because if you're LGBTQI+, if you're LGBTQI+, and religious, there are many places where you can either be safe and not have the connection, or you can have the connection and not be safe. So safe connection really help create the condition where the elasticity of the rubber band can be preserved. And how do you have those safe connections? Is for all of us, I'm sure many of us are competent, impressive, excellent. But I think in order to create safe connection, we all need to strive to be beautiful to each other. Right. To create that sense of belonging and acceptance and love in a deep heart-to-heart -heart level. 